You are listening to ReachMD, the only source for medical education and information that is on air, online, and on the go. Welcome to the Connect Dialogues, women's health education on ReachMD. Anyone in medicine will freely admit that osteoporosis is a major health threat in the United States. And yet the majority of patients with osteoporosis remain undiagnosed and untreated. In fact, fewer than one-third of cases have even been diagnosed, and only 14% of women with osteoporosis receive treatment. Now, this comes in stark contrast to the fact that more than 50% of women over age 50 will encounter an osteoporosis-related fracture. So what can the healthcare community do in the face of these odds? You're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD. I'm Dr. Matt Bernholtz. And I'm joined by Dr. Michael Lewicki, Osteoporosis Director at the New Mexico Clinical Research and Osteoporosis Center. He's also Clinical Assistant Professor of Medicine at the University of New Mexico School of Medicine. And Dr. Lewicki may say he's a small-town primary care doc, but he's also one of the foremost authorities on osteoporosis care in the U.S. So, Dr. Lewicki, it is a pleasure to have you on the program. Thank you, Matt. It's great to be here. So, Dr. Lewicki, let's, let's start with a basic rundown of osteoporosis. I know I put a, a bleak spin on it to start, but what's the current scope or burden of disease in the U.S.? Is it an epidemic? Well, osteoporosis is uh, extraordinarily common. Uh, there are about 44 million Americans who have either osteoporosis or low bone mass that puts them at increased risk for fracture. And there are at least 2 million osteoporotic fractures per year in the United States, resulting in health care costs over $17 billion per year and increasing the morbidity and mortality of patients that uh, have these kinds of fractures. And who are the, the most at-risk populations? The highest uh, risk population is postmenopausal women. Uh, however, anyone can get osteoporosis, and 20% uh, of osteoporosis is in men. And men who get osteoporotic fractures actually have more dire consequences from those fractures than women the same age. We often look at lower weight as being higher risk for for osteoporosis or very low-weight people. But uh, one question that often comes up is whether obesity is protective uh, or contributory to osteoporosis. Well, certainly very low uh, body weight uh, is uh, generally recognized as being a risk factor. It uh, used to be thought that uh, obesity was uh, protective. Uh, more recent data show that uh, perhaps uh, patients at the extremes of obesity uh, may uh, also be at increased risk for fracture. Uh, reasons for this may be that they're more likely to uh, fall because uh, their muscle strength and balance may not be as good as uh, individuals who are more fit, and uh, they may be more likely to have vitamin D deficiency than other people that's also related to the obesity. Would you say there's anything close to a uniform ideal body weight for women uh, as far as reducing osteoporosis or fracture risk. And let me open that up to men as well, but let's start with women. Well, I, I think a, a, a BMI in the, the low 20s is probably appropriate uh, for most of us. Uh, overweight is considered to be uh, BMI between 25 and 30, and uh, obesity is uh, a BMI over 30. So uh, I think any time the BMI gets over 30, that's uh, uh, pause for uh, reconsideration of one's lifestyle and uh, perhaps making some changes to uh, improve health, not, not only for skeletal reasons, of course, but for uh, all the other health benefits of uh, being in better physical condition and having a better weight. And BMI is probably the better way to approach looking at it as opposed to some sort of 
uh, near standardized number, which just wouldn't capture a number of people very well, I imagine. I, uh, BMI, I, I think, is better than absolute weight, but uh, certainly uh, BMI is not perfect as uh, well. Uh, BMI doesn't uh, distinguish between uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger at his uh, prime, uh, who might uh, have had a very high uh, BMI uh, and yet been very healthy, and uh, somebody with the same BMI who had a much uh, higher percentage of body fat and uh, had considerable health risks. Well, when we talk about health risks, it seems like there is some confusion in clinical practice as to which risk factors for osteoporosis and related fractures are are more or less important. So can you give us an idea of um, how you think about risk factor assessments in your practice? Well, let me give you the big three. Uh, that's bone density, age, and previous fracture. So if you know uh, the patient's age, if you know what their bone density is, and you know whether or not they've had a previous fracture, including, by the way, asymptomatic vertebral fractures that may not be clinically recognized but can be detected by an image of the spine, uh, you'll have a pretty good handle on, on the patient's uh, fracture risk. So the, the lower the T-score, for example, uh, the greater the fracture risk. Uh, the greater the age, the greater the fracture risk, even at the same T-score. And a patient having a previous fracture is at very high risk for future fracture, independently of uh, what their bone density is. That's interesting. And I think you started moving a little bit into um, diagnostic methods. Are, are, what are the diagnostic methods out there, and are they being adequately utilized in practice? Well, the entry-level test for evaluation of skeletal health is a, a bone density test with a DEXA, dual energy X-ray absorptiometry. Uh, this generates a T-score, and a T-score is used for uh, diagnostic classification according to uh, cutoffs established by the World Health Organization. Uh, that's a good start. Uh, mo many patients who could benefit from getting a bone density test are not now getting it. Uh, it's recommended that all women age 65 and older have a bone density test and that all men age 70 and older uh, be tested. Uh, younger postmenopausal women and perimenopausal women who have risk factors for fracture should be tested, and men between the ages of 50 and 70 with risk factors should also be tested. Uh, unfortunately, this is uh, all too often not being done. And since osteoporosis is a silent disease uh, with no symptoms until a fracture occurs, uh, patients aren't often motivated to ask their doctor to get a test, and uh, often physicians have other priorities. A uh, primary care doctor is very busy uh, managing more obvious medical problems that uh, concern the patient, and uh, unfortunately, osteoporosis is often uh, put aside uh, with other things uh, taking precedent at the time of the office visit. Yeah, you know, it strikes me as, as interesting when you say about patients not asking as much. I mean, my first impression, of course, is should they even have to? It should be the onus of the physician and other healthcare provider to be pushing that. But it sounds like physicians and clinicians are underutilizing diagnostic methods or early recognition of osteoporosis? Well, I see physicians and patients as a team, and uh, certainly physicians ought to be uh, aware of the guidelines and, uh, and use those appropriately, but, but frankly, we're inundated with clinical practice guidelines, and uh, uh, there are so many that it's impossible to keep up with them. So uh, I think patients should also uh, be an advocate for their own health, and uh, whenever possible, uh, they should remind the doctor that uh, perhaps uh, something else should be considered that uh, didn't already come up in the conversation. That's well put. 
why don't we move into some non-pharmacologic interventions because it seems like there's no shortage of misconceptions here and not to mention a tendency to want to gloss over lifestyle recommendations um, on a busy day for the clinician. So how do you approach patients on this and what are the common traps that clinicians might fall into here? Well, I, I think the uh, essentials for good skeletal health for all of us are regular physical activity, uh, adequate uh, intake of calcium and vitamin D, and uh, avoidance of things that are known to be uh, bad for bones, such as uh, cigarette smoking or excess alcohol. Uh, many uh, people in our population have calcium deficient diets, and uh, many have inadequate uh, vitamin D intake. So it's important to counsel patients, I think, that uh, the general recommendations for most adults are to take about 1,200 milligram of calcium per day, which includes dietary calcium. And the ideal uh, form of calcium intake is in the diet, and patients should certainly be encouraged to do so uh, if they can. If there's a calcium-deficient diet, then supplements uh, can be helpful to get up to that 1,200 milligram mark. Uh, there's no added benefit uh, that we know of to getting more than 1,200 milligrams, and there's possible harm with uh, getting a great excess of calcium intake, and that uh, may include an increased risk of kidney stones. And perhaps, uh, as suggested in some studies, there may be an increased risk of uh, uh, soft tissue calcification, such as uh, calcifications in uh, arteries that uh, could perhaps uh, increase the risk of cardiovascular disease. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD. I'm Dr. Matt Bernholtz, and with me today is Dr. Michael Lewicki from the New Mexico Clinical Research and Osteoporosis Center. We're talking about the osteoporosis epidemic in America and steps to address it in practice one patient at a time. Dr. Lewicki, we're, we're talking about um, some of the guidelines. We mentioned that. How adherent are you to the overall guidelines on things like physical activity levels, which always struck me as a little bit nebulous, um, ever-changing as far as recommendations for patients? And probably I would think that there's some personalization, some tailoring to each patient. What is your approach to that? Well, there are many benefits of physical activity uh, other than for the skeleton. Uh, It improves uh, the sense of well-being for many people. Uh, It may help to maintain uh, body weight at a good level. Uh, it may improve balance and reduce the risk of falls. Uh, for most people, I just encourage them to be active. Uh, sometimes even using the word exercise is a little scary for some people since uh, they think of exercise as uh, uh, going to a gym and pumping iron. Uh, but in, in reality, I think uh, an active lifestyle, which involves doing uh, anything on their feet, uh, it can be gardening, it can even be shopping if they're vigorous shoppers, but uh, just keep moving. And I remind people that uh, the worst thing of all they can do, no matter how bad the osteoporosis, is to be a couch potato and not do anything. Uh, That's bad for cardiovascular fitness, and uh, ultimately uh, muscle strength will go down, balance will get worse, they'll be more likely to fall and more likely to break bones. So I just tell people to keep moving. Now, for some people, going to a physical therapist or going to a trainer in a gym uh, may provide some extra motivation and give them some uh, ideas for how to do some specific sorts of things. Uh, But for most people, uh, just activity is fine. Just fine. And you probably don't come across uh, the reverse situation all that often where people become, if anything, too overzealous. They used to be quite the athlete in their day. They maybe got um, a weekend warrior-like mindset of thinking and they want to take on too much too fast. They want to hit those squat racks and things like that when they are osteopenic or osteoporotic. 
Um, do you ever have to deal with that kind of situation and actually have to put the restraints on as far as physical activity? Because there are probably some risks as well. Well, I, I see many patients who are, uh, uh, let me say, obsessive-compulsive uh, in terms of taking care of their uh, osteoporosis, and uh, they may not only uh, go overboard on exercise, but uh, they may tend to go overboard on calcium and vitamin D intake as well. So I, I certainly emphasize moderation uh, for all of us. Mo- moderation and common sense, I think, are... Uh, a good way to structure their life in general. Well, why don't we um, shift over to some of the pharmacologic agents? Um, and my first question is, what are your first concerns and considerations when s- thinking about moving in on pharmacologic agents for osteoporosis for your patients? Well, the first question is, uh, who needs uh, treatment in the first place? And we have uh, guidelines from the National Osteoporosis Foundation that uh, recommend consideration of treatment for any patient who's had uh, a fracture of the hip or spine uh, if it's a postmenopausal woman or man age 50 and older. Uh, they also recommend uh, treatment if the T-score at the femoral neck or the lumbar spine is minus 2.5 or below. And finally, for patients with osteopenia with T-scores between minus 1 and minus 2.5, uh, it's recommended to use uh, FRAX, uh, which is a World Health Organization fracture risk assessment tool. And if the patient has osteopenia and the FRAX, 10-year probability of major osteoporotic fracture is 20% or more, or if the 10-year probability of hip fracture is 3% or more, uh, it's recommended that pharmacological therapy be considered. And that gets uh, at the age-old question of how to treat osteopenia Uh, since we haven't done a very good job uh, of that in the past. Uh, Osteopenia represents patients with a wide range of fracture risk. Uh, The challenge uh, to all of us is to identify those patients with osteopenia who are at high fracture risk and treat them, and identify those who are not at high fracture risk who might do just fine with non-pharmacological therapy, uh, uh, good nutrition, and healthy lifestyle. You know, the term drug holidays come up uh, a lot these days when it comes to bisphosphonates. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, the concept of a drug holiday has uh, emerged uh, with bisphosphonates because uh, they have uh, a long skeletal retention time. So if you've been taking a bisphosphonate for three to five years and then stop taking it, it will actually continue to have an antiresorptive effect for some undetermined uh, length of time afterwards. So in a sense, uh, stopping the medication in in that case is not actually stopping treatment. And I explain this to patients by telling them that the bones act like a time-release capsule uh, for the medicine, and it's therefore still working. The the flip side of this coin has to do with safety. It appears uh, that uh, there may be some very rare adverse effects with long-term bisphosphonate therapy uh, that become more common, even though they're still quite rare, uh, with long-term usage. And this includes things like osteonecrosis of the jaw and atypical fractures of the femur. So in a patient who's been taking a bisphosphonate for three to five years and is no longer at high risk for fracture, uh, if their T-score is considerably better than minus 2.5 and they've not yet had an osteoporotic fracture, they're potential candidates for discussion about a drug holiday. Uh, That might be for a period of time of one year, perhaps a couple of years in some patients. They need to be appropriately monitored. Uh, 
uh, probably with bone density testing and maybe with bone turnover markers. And at some point when the estimation of fracture risk becomes higher, they may be candidates for ending the drug holiday and getting back on the medication. Well, we only have about one more minute, but I have to ask you uh, another kind of uh, flip side question to this, which is what we might call an unsanctioned drug holiday, and that being poor compliance rates with uh, use of these pharmacologic agents like bisphosphonates. Is there a rule of thumb um, from your experience regarding compliance rates for taking osteoporosis drugs and risks of fractures? Um, specifically, how often can a person go off taking the drug and still have it be effective? Well, in, in general, what we know from studies is that you probably have to be taking your drug uh, correctly for uh, at least 80% or so of the doses in order to benefit from a, a meaningful reduction in fracture risk. And uh, studies have shown that if you're only taking 50% or less of the medicine, uh, you're probably getting no anti-fracture uh, benefit at all. Dr. Lewicki, uh, we barely scratched the surface of the topic, I know. Um, I'd love to have you back on again. My thanks to Dr. Michael Lewicki for joining us today. We've been talking about the osteoporosis epidemic in America. I'm Dr. Matt Bernholz. Be sure to visit us online at reachmd.com for access to this and many other programs. And thanks, as always, for listening. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to the Connect Dialogues, women's health education. If you missed any part of this program or would like to hear more like it, visit www.reachmd.com forward slash connect dialogues.